female folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what's going on. He hit your face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed. Baby Azaria Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980. G'day. Welcome back to Man It Is The Only True Crime Podcast on the internet where all the killers are real animals. Whether it's biting, scratchings, maulings or clawings, we're here to talk about it. Should I retake this intro or do you find little stuff up in there charming? It humanizes me, doesn't it, you know? Because I do think there is the risk that... um. I appear like a perfect guy to a lot of people. When you listen to the show, I come across as a really well-put-together gentleman. Um, And sometimes that can be alienating and isolating for you, plebs. Um, You know, how can I possibly relate to this this god of a man? But then you hear me flub one of the lines in the intro that I say every week. I say that intro every single week, and yet I still make mistakes. And you go, he's just a normal guy like me. He puts his cock on one leg at a time. Pretty sure that's how the um, the expression goes. How's it going, everybody? I I, th- I feel like I need to come up with a better name to call you guys. What 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 do I call the audience of this show? Um, f- man eater fa- fa- fan eaters fan eaters. It has a good ring to it, but it just doesn't make sense. Um, little gremlins. <laughs> I like that. My little gremlins. Little stinkies, I think I tried that a few years ago, and yeah, the, the audience just dropped off. You didn't appreciate it. Um, oh, I've got it. Tick Dicklers. <laughs> How's it going, Tick Dicklers? <laughs> Do you get it? It's it's a play on Dick Tickler, but it's Tick Dickler. It's, it's reversed, and a tick is an animal that eats blood, so it's kind of relevant to the show. Yeah. Let's keep workshopping that, uh, and let's move on. Uh, (laughs) What is this? This is a show all about animal attacks, and today, it's no different. We are finishing off our series on Glacier National Park. Last week, we talked about two deaths. I'm sorry, we talked about one death, two two maulings and one death. Um, It was the first bear attack in the, I believe, 57-year history of the park. And today, we're going to finish off that series by telling you about the attack that happened almost simultaneously to that attack. Um, That's right, on the same summer night back in 1967, I believe it is, um, there were two bear attacks after there had never been one before. Um, And so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the mauling itself, the death of the the victim, as well as the aftermath of what happened in the park afterwards and um, the legacy that those two uh, attacks have, have left for the park. Um, so let's just, let's just get right in, into it. I haven't said this for a while, but buckle in, fuckle in knuckleheads. And, um, is that a quote from something? Is that from Succession? Fuck, bu- fuckle in knuckleheads. That sounds like it's a quote. I, that's too funny. It can't be me. Knuckle up, buckle fuck. <laughs> what the fuck am I doing? Let's get into Death in Glacier Part 2. recap the story so far. Our story takes place in Glacier National Park on the night of August 12th. It was a warm summer's night and as we mentioned last week, the forest was particularly dry and there had been fires raging the night before due to several electrical storms that passed over the valley and a lot of lightning strikes hit the valley causing a lot of the dry foliage to go up in flames. Now on the night of August 12th, near the park, uh, Granite Park Chalet, Um, A bear had attacked two people who were veterans in the park. They both worked at the chalet. One of them worked in the laundry. One of them worked as a waiter. Um, The park attacked Roy Ducat and a woman named... I've forgotten her name already. Julie Helgeson, I think it was. Um, Roy Ducat survived. He made it back. But Julie did not. She was not as lucky. The uh, chalet sent down a group of people to try and rescue them. 
They carried Cat back up. They did uh, makeshift surgery on him um, in the dining room of the chalet. A helicopter was sent out to retrieve him, uh, and unfortunately, they did find Julie. They brought her back to the dining room operating center, um, but she had already, or she passed away before they could do anything to help. So also on the night of August 12th, five young seasonal park employees and a puppy named Squirt They'd planned a quiet evening of fishing and camping at Trout Lake. I don't know if Squirt technically planned anything. That's a weird way to write it, but Squirt was there, and he's the puppy. 16-year-old Paul Dunn, a busboy at East Glacier Lodge, was the only member of the group who had never camped in the backcountry, but his companions all had. Denise Huckle, who was 20, brothers Roy and Ray Nosek, 21 and 23, and Michelle Coons who was 19 and working in the Lake McDonald Lodge gift shop that summer. They arrived at Log Jam Camp at the lake's edge and set up their gear. They hung their food in a tree and they started to work fishing and they started sorry, they started to work fishing for their dinner while Michelle supervised the dog. Michelle noticed a bear through the smoke of the campfire moments after her and Paul returned to the camp with his catch and they began cooking. She informed the others, and all five of them dashed up to the slope, picking up Squirt as they ran. They watched from 50 yards away as the slender grizzly that had been reported at this spot tore up their tent, consuming their catch and everything else it could find. After nearly 30 minutes of watching this show, the group decided to camp in a new location in the woods where the bear might be less likely to hunt for scraps off human packs. By this point, it was dark, so returning to Lake McDonald seemed as risky as staying put. Furthermore, everything that the veteran campers knew about bears said that if they didn't bother the bear, the bear wouldn't bother them. They agreed to stay put, and once the bear had left the encampment, they retrieved their sleeping bags and whatever food they could find. They built a fire and went to bed for the night at their new location. Denise awoke some hours later when she heard splashing sounds in the water. She roused her friends, and they watched as the bear's outline walked into the former camp and grabbed a sack of cookies that had been left in the hopes of distracting the beast from their current location. It was 4am and daylight was still at least two hours away, so some of the party went back to sleep. But Denise remained attentive and kept a tight grip on Squirt the puppy. Denise saw the bear again, not more than half an hour later, this time running straight for their current camp. She drew her head into her sleeping bag and remained still, listening to the bear rip through what sounded like material. While the bear rummaged through the camp, everyone remained calm and silent until Paul felt the animal bite into his sleeping bag and grab a piece of his hoodie. As the bear raised up on hind legs, Paul managed to slide out of his sleeping bag and flee. He climbed a tree to safety as Ron and Denise emerged, Ron yelling at Denise to run while she wrestled with Squirt's collar. They dashed for the shoreline and soon found themselves between two trees, while Paul yelled for Ray and Michelle to flee for their life. Ray moved as swiftly as he could, interrupted only by the bear sniffing attentively at his sleeping bag. When the bear turned to Michelle's bag, he made a break for it. He's gripping my arm, she yelled. As the bear nibbled into the girl's sleeping bag, she screamed. She couldn't flee, since the bear had the zipper tight in its jaws. Oh my god, I'm dead, she shouted again seconds later. The bear grabbed Michelle's sleeping bag and dragged her out of the tent and into the darkness. When the four campers realized there was nothing they could do for Michelle, they gathered their shoes and made the four-mile trip across Howl Ridge to the nearest road, where a couple, just starting a hike, offered to drive them to the nearest ranger station. When Ranger Leonard Landa arrived at the station at 8.10am on August 13th, he had already heard about the bear mauling that had resulted in Julie Helgeson's death just a few hours before, so it seemed impossible that the four campers standing right before him could be telling of another bear attack on that same night. He sent Ray and Denise home and brought Paul and Ron back to Trout Lake, where they found exactly what the campers had described, the main campsite in ruins, and no sign of Michelle Coons. 
They went up the slope in the direction Paul had seen the bear pull the girl, and soon they came across the remains of Michelle's body. Much of it had been chewed away by the attacking grizzly. Soon after, pilot John Westover, who we mentioned multiple times in the last episode, flew his third mercy trip in less than 12 hours, this time to transfer Michelle Coons' body from the park. By the end of Monday, rangers equipped with high-power rifles had killed two grizzly bears at the Granite Park Chalet and another near Trout Lake. A fourth bear was also killed by ranger weapons. Later examination and testing proved that the Trout Lake bear was responsible for the attack and death of Michelle Coons. Examinations of the bears in the Granite Park region remained inconclusive. And of course, now we have to talk about the aftermath. After 57 years of no fatal attacks from bears on humans, how is it possible that two attacks happened in separate areas almost at the exact same time? Why had two grizzly bears attacked human campers in two distinct locations, although such an event had never occurred in the park's 57-year history? Well, speculation was rife. Some people speculated that the bears were upset by the number and regularity of lightning strikes the night before the attacks. Quote, There seems to be an association between the lightning and the attacks, Park Superintendent Keith Nielsen told the Associated Press in a story published Monday, August 14, 1967. He mentioned that a park service biologist was on his way to the park to figure out just what had caused the bear's unusual behavior. In the meantime, a slew of experts stepped forward to weigh in. Dr. Frank Craighead Jr., a researcher who worked on extensive studies of the grizzly bear with his brother John Craighead, who also later wrote the book Track of the Grizzly, said that these encounters were to be expected given the park's increased popularity in recent years. Craighead noted in the Cali Spell newspaper, The Daily Interlake, that because of the increased visitor use of such areas, the incidence of contact between grizzly and man is expected to increase. The Montana Fish and Game Department's Faye Cooey dismissed the claim that lightning led bears to the attack, as well as remarks made from others that a low huckleberry crop and dry weather may have caused the animals to attack. Cooey, who understands grizzly bears better than anyone in the area, believes, quote, No one knows grizzly bear psychology well enough to explain the death of the two girls. Cooey continued in the same piece in the Daily Interlake, I have never heard any theories based on any actual studies that would indicate that bears are incited to violence by lightning strikes or extended periods of hot, dry weather. I would be very much against the complete elimination of grizzly bears in the area because of these two incidents. We respect the grizzly bear. Cooey continued, Grizzlies tore up many camps in the area, so it was only a matter of time before something like this happened. Camp bears are used to garbage and camp food, and they never get enough, they explained to the Daily Interlake. People who sleep in areas where these bears are present take significant risk. They are not just risking having their camp equipment ripped up or being chased away by a bear, they are risking their lives, as these recent cases demonstrate. The general public began to remark on the subject in less than a week, which was lightning speed back in 1967, apparently. On Friday, August 18, 1967, an open letter to the National Park Service was published in the Daily Interlake, requesting that the government agency allow individuals to, quote, have the protection of a sealed firearm of sufficient caliber to take out a grizzly if the situation occurred. In reaction to the apparent public outcry for grizzly bear extinction, editorials in the Independent Record and the Daily Intellect pleaded for calm and care. Quote, Persons hiking and camping in the wilderness must be made aware that they have invaded the domain of wild animals and advised of the precautions they must take, according to an editorial published on August 18th. It would be a shame to eliminate the park's grizzlies because of last weekend's tragedies. Another article in the Daily Interlake on Sunday, August 20th stated, When there is a flood anywhere, most people immediately want to build a dam, and it's been proven that this is not always the answer. Time and research are required, making a decision that may affect the well-being of all northwest Montana and its people. 
When the Park Service finally produced a report over a year later, it claimed that a, vari- a variety of ideas had been investigated, and no single conclusion could explain why the two bears attacked campers within hours of each other in two different regions of the park. The park made a number of de- the park made a number of decisive actions to prevent further assaults, but one in particular stands out. They closed the dumps at Granite Park and in the park's northwestern branch at Polebridge and the rangers began to enforce the park's long-standing but widely ignored prohibitions against feeding bears. There were no other bear attacks for nine years after the events of August 12, 1967, but the ensuing occurrences bore more than a passing resemblance to the deaths of Julie Helgeson and Michelle Coons. On September 23, 1976, Mary Pat Mahoney, who was 22 years old, was camping with a group of friends at Many Glacier Campground and followed every precaution the Park Service instructed to avoid a bear encounter. Her group camped in a designated area, placed their food in bear-proof containers out of reach of any marauding bears, slept in tents rather than on the ground, left their cosmetics at home, and even organized their excursion for a day when none of the females were menstruating. They parked their unsecured automobile about 10 feet away from the tents in case they needed to flee. Nonetheless, at about 7am, an adolescent grizzly bear dragged Mary Pat from her tent and mauled her to death and consumed her. Her companions were able to flee and seek assistance and two grizzly bears were shot dead by park authorities within an hour and a half. Human blood was found in the front claws of one of the bears. The park authorities knew which bears to find and kill this time since the animals had a brief but vivid history of visiting campsites and chasing people. Two teenage bears were discovered just a week ago at an illegal camp on Iceberg Lake near Many Glacier Campground. Because the campers had not kept their food in bear-proof containers or hung it up out of reach of bears, the bears helped themselves to what they had found. Two days later, the bears saw two hikers at Patarmin Lake, I think that's how you say that, Tarmagin Lake, who abandoned their packs and fled, leaving the bears to eat heartedly and cementing the link between people and food. These same bears returned a few days later to Manny Glacier Campground and ate from a garbage can, and over the next few days, they began to approach humans directly, first a sunbather, then two fishermen, and finally, campers in an area that had been closed to camping due to bear behavior. The pattern had been established by the time Mary Pat Mahoney and her friends camped at Manny Glacier. These two habituated beasts would have posed a threat to any camper. Jane Ammerman and her boyfriend, Kim Eberly, two 19-year-olds on their day off from Lake McDonald Lodge, chose to spend the night at the St. Mary Resort area on July 23, 1980. Despite instructions posted all over the development campground, an area designed more for trailers and mobile homes than for tent camping, the pair chose to, quote, The pair chose a spit of land between two lakes on the eastern edge of the park and set up a campsite outside of the development area in the thicket alongside a pleasant stream. They apparently assumed all the Paris grizzly bears were spending the summer in the distant high country, as is common, the tribute said. Nobody saw what happened next, but at about noon the next day, fishermen discovered the mutilated bodies of one of the youngsters, and a park ranger search quickly picked up the second body. Both had been partially consumed, Stephen Herrera writes in his book Bear Attacks, Their Causes and Avoidance. Park Superintendent Philip Iverson appointed Herrero to a commission of inquiry to investigate the deaths of the two young people. The investigation uncovered a risky situation. About half a mile from the camp was a small garbage dump, Herrero noted in an email. The waste was on private inholding land surrounded by Blackfoot engines. Park officials attempted to stop the dump, but the region was beyond their control. Herrera believes the bear that attacked Jane and Kim was probably on their way to or from the landfill early on July 24th when it came across the teenagers resting on top of their tent during the warm, humid night. 
Indeed, people in the St. Mary's region had seen such a bear, a three-year-old grizzly that foraged in the waste far too frequently for their comfort. Before this, several Blackfoot tribe members attempted to shoot the bear, knowing that its acclimatization acclimatization to humans could be deadly. With two teenagers now dead, the Blackfoot Native Americans had the incentive to follow the bear vigorously, and they caught it and killed it the same day. An autopsy showed that the two teenage bodies were in the bear's digestive tract. While the fatalities shook the 1980s summer park staff, they did not cause the panic and dread that the 1967 deaths did. Park officials swiftly fitted the puzzle pieces together, linking the origins of the attacks to violations, albeit outside the park's control, of established measures for preventing bears from becoming acclimated to human contact. Lawrence Gordon, who was 33 years old, set out on a solo camping expedition in the Belly River Valley on September, in September of 1980, stopping at Elizabeth Lake for the night. The warnings against hiking and camping alone extend far beyond Glacier National Park to include any park in any state or county, wherein anywhere in the world, and Glacier Park rangers chastise him for venturing into the Montana wilderness alone, but Gordon clearly felt confident in his own outdoor abilities. It's unclear when the grizzly bear attacked Gordon in his camp, but what's left of him was discovered on October 3rd. The investigation into his death yielded some assurance that he died as a consequence of a bear attack, but also left open the possibility that Gordon died of another reason and was merely scavenged by a bear familiar with the area. The next death from a grizzly would come seven years later, but the cause of this one was clearly the hiker's relative inexperienced. Charles Gibbs, a 40-year-old wildlife photographer, was hiking with his wife, Glenda, when they came across a female grizzly bear and her three cubs on the slope of Elk Mountain. Charles eagerly set out to get closer to the bears for a great photo, while Glenda continued on the trail to the couple's car. With no one to tell Charles he was getting too close, his family had to piece together the end of the story from photos on the last roll of film he would ever shoot. Charles attempted to follow the bears, even though they walked away from him, and he supposedly captured some great images of the sow turning towards him to challenge him. The sow charged him, and while he didn't move. According to a Backpacker magazine story, his last photograph showed the bear about 50 yards and moving towards him. Gary Gordon, a 29-year-old park night park night auditor during the summer months, did an off-trail solo trip to Nahaki Lake in the Manny Glacier area on July 27, 1987. Gary's last known whereabouts on that July day were that he enjoyed hiking Glacier's trail, that he'd gone out there alone, and that he'd chosen to venture into the wilderness rather than follow an established route. There was no sign of him until September 1st when his mostly devoured body was recovered near the lake. We'll never know if Gary was attacked by a bear on the route or was unable to flee or if he died of some of the cause and became a meal of opportunity for a passing grizzly. Gary's name was added to the now long list of persons who traveled alone and never returned, serving as a cautionary note to those who risked their lives on wilderness paths in pursuit of solitude and self-discovery. When veteran Back County hiker John Petranyi came across the mother grizzly bear and her two cubs on the loop trail in the upper McDonald Valley, half a mile below Granite Park Chalet, park management and wildlife officials from all across the region wondered what to do next. On October 3rd, 1992, Pet Ranyi, Ranyi, a 40-year-old visitor from Madison, Wisconsin, was hiking alone in the middle of the day when he came across the three grizzlies. The sow mauled him to death, and she and her two cubs nibbled on his body before fleeing the scene. All three bears were dead eight days later, killed by park staff. According to a story published by the Christian Science Monitor, this was, quote, one of the worst grizzly bear attacks ever, and it was caused by, quote, the increasing number of human bear encounters as grizzly bear habitats continued to shrink in the lower 48 states. With less habitat in the park's immediate proximity as a northwestern Montana became a popular location for new residences and large settlements, grizzlies and people were coming face-to-face more frequently than ever before. 
Glacier National Park's popularity surged as well, with 2.2 million tourists in 1992, up from 1.6 million in the 80s. More interaction between humans and bears was unfortunately unavoidable. And we've noticed a new trend, said Park Chief Ranger Steve Fry. People are looking for more solitary, off-the-beaten-path areas in the park than they used to. Because grizzlies cannot survive on an island, we must preserve habitats outside of the park system where they can roam freely. Bears simply do not comprehend administrative limits. Experts from all aspects of the bear habitat debate weighed in. The Alliance for the Wild Rockies Executive Director Mike Bader has urged for the closing of, quote, large segments of bear habitat on a seasonal basis. When managers know it's a poor food year, they need to be more flexible and make unpopular decisions to close areas for the bears. The Border Grizzly Project's director, Charles Jonkel, disagreed with the decision to kill the responsible bears. Quote, there was no historical biological evidence to support the premise that bears would link killing would link killing the victim with feeding on them. That's where that's what he claimed. Grizzlies do not have a predator-prey relationship with man. Grizzly Bear Rehabilitation Coordinator for the National Park Service Chris St- uh, Servheen, U.S. Fish and Wildlife agent, remained steadfast in his belief. Communicated that the park agency when the bear hunt began. We don't tolerate these types of aggressive bears, he explained to the monitor. It's dangerous and it's teaching its cubs things and it's not the type of animal we will tolerate in grizzly habitat. He claimed that because cubs learn everything from their mother, the attack rendered them a lost cause. When another family unit of three bears, a mother and two cubs, stalked, killed, and devoured 26-year-old Craig Dahl while he hiked a meandering trail above Two Medicine Valley on the 17th of May, 1998, Forensic science had advised, had advanced to the point that searches, researchers knew exactly which bears were responsible. What had caused this particular sow to regard people as food remained a mystery, even as scientists checked their hair and scat at the site for DNA matches with the park's tagged bears. They discovered that the mother bear, dubbed Chocolate Legs, had chased Dahl downhill for several yards before murdering him, providing direct evidence that the bear mother was involved. Steve Steve Nydek, I think that's how you would say it, Glacier's top wildlife biologist, was well acquainted with chocolate legs. Sounds racist. (laughs) By the age of 18 months, the bear had become accustomed to humans, scavenging through trash barrels at people's homes and allowing tourists to picture her bear jams on cars... (laughs) Allowing tourists to picture her in bear jams, which is a car traffic jam uh, on the side of the roadway. Park personnel captured this bear back in 1983 and moved her out of the area, and she lived a normal bear's life until just a few months before she led an attack on Craig Dahl, when she and her cubs came to Two Medicine Campground, as there were no people there. The three bears had begun charging hikers back in September 1997. Current bear management policy in Glacial National Park, Montana, dictates that such bears be killed or captured and removed from the park after one such aggressive incident, wrote Herrero in an update to his 1985 book. Such action is probably necessary to give an acceptable level of safety, but this new toughness towards grizzly bears must come in conjunction with a similar toughness towards ignorant and careless park visitors whose food or garbage starts a grizzly on such a path. And that's it, guys. That's the conclusion of our Death in Glacier Bear Attack series. Uh, Yeah, two very different but very similar bear attacks in Julie Helgeson and uh, Michelle Coons, who both died within hours of each other uh, after a period of no bear deaths. Um, And I think that, like, if you're looking for a reason on why this happened, I'm in the party that's inclined to believe that it was a bit of a coincidence. It just happened. I don't think that it was a uh, reaction to lightning strikes. I don't think there were, like, less elderberries or whatever. I just think that with more and more instances of humans coming in contact with bears, um, this was inevitable. And it's just a coincidence, a cosmic fluke, that two deaths broke the fast of bear attacks at the same time. Uh, It could very well have happened days apart, months apart, weeks apart. It just so happened it happened on the same night. Um, and we heard a lot there about the aftermath of it as well and what needed to change. They shut down the um, the garbage um, d- 
dumps, which I find so hard to believe that they ever allowed garbage dumps. But it was the 60s, you know, it's a different time. Um, it's not, it was like nearly 60 years ago, that's crazy, that's wild. Um, yeah, thank you for listening to that, I hope you learned a lot. We're going to take a little break now, and we will be back with the rest of the episode. And we are back. Yeah, I, I keep thinking about, like, the... Just the... It always happens to people who are sleeping, right? You're asleep, and then the bear attacks you. That's just the worst. God damn. I never found out what happened to Squirt, too, in that second story about Michelle Coons. Um, they mentioned the dog many times, but I was, like, really scared the dog was going to get eaten. I don't know if it did. I think Squirt was okay. Thank God for Squirt, honestly. Okay, let's move on now to the next segment on the show. One of my favorite segments of the show. We really only have one or two segments, so I, I feel comfortable saying it is my favorite. We're gonna talk about the scratch of the day. Scratch of the day, of course, the segment where we looked in the news this week to see what's happened between animals and humans recently, and we have a couple of stories for you. Are you ready for them? Hooray! Our first uh, story comes from The Guardian, and the headline reads, Port Nuranga jet Jetty Shark Attack, Woman in Hospital After Being Bitten on Head. This is an Australian story, just so you know. A 36-year-old woman has been left with serious injuries after a shark attack at Port Nulunga Jetty in South Australia. The South Australia Ambulance Services said the woman was bitten on the head at about 1.20pm at the beach, which is south of Adelaide. A spokesperson for the injuries, sorry, a spokesperson said the injuries were serious and that the woman was taken to Flinders Medical Centre. According to South Australia Police, the woman's injuries were not life-threatening. In a statement, police say they failed to find the shark after evacuating the beach and have since allowed members of the public to return to the water. Quote, Police, with the assistance of other emergency services, evacuated the water while a search to locate the shark was undertaken. Members of the public have since returned to the water after the search failed to locate the shark. It comes less than two weeks after 55-year-old surfer Todd Gentle was killed after he was attacked by a great white at Streaky Bay on the South Australian West Coast. We talked about that in another episode. That was a second fatal incident on the Erie Peninsula this year after a local school teacher, Simon Balcanio, who was 43, was attacked by a shark at Walker Rock Beach near Elliston. It's a short one, but a good one. Lady bitten on the head. Ouchie, ouchie. Okay. <laughs> Next story. It's about an elephant. This was published, like, half an hour ago. So, the story may change as we go through. Um, this one's from uh, the, ooh, the Kabar, the Kabar Hub. Kabar Hub. I think it's an Indian website. Um, headline reads, elderly killed in elephant attack in Japa. Um, let's, let's read this. Let's see. It's a very short story. Japa, a 72-year-old Padmalal Tamang who was living in a Bhutanese refugee camp in Beldangi, Damak of Japa, died after being attacked by a wild elephant. According to the head of the Division Forest Office, uh, Tamang was attacked by an elephant in a community of forest sorry, in a community forest outside the camp last evening. Tamang lived in hut number 252 of sector number 2 of the camp. He'd gone to the forest to search for firewood in the afternoon. As he did not return in the evening, he was found dead in the forest during the search. Likewise, wild elephants destroyed a single concrete house of Bishal Dalhal, located in uh, Mekingar Municipality 11. Dalhal informed that an elephant that entered the village from the local community forest broke the wall and entered the house. Another short one. Um, what else? Let's let's do a live search. These play, these have been a lot shorter than I've been expecting. Let's search animal attack news. Let's see what comes up. Um, we'll do the first one that we haven't done before. Milford man charged with brutal savage animal attacks. Oh, that sounds more like a wacky, uh, wacky weirdo of the week to me. But we already have one of those. Um... We've read a lot of these. This is the problem, is that uh, when you do something as long as I have, you, you, you do it all. Oh, okay. Oh, no, we've already done that one. That was about the uh, the boy who 
wandered away from home and was killed by some sort of animal. This is an interesting story. This is from February this year. It's not really a story. It's just a, it's an article. The, the article questions, uh, which large animals are involved in the deadliest human attacks and where do frequent animal attacks happen? So let's just read it and learn. A new survey using 70 years of data sheds light on where and when and why large carnivores kill humans and the profound influences these animals have on ecosystems amid further spread into undeveloped land. Various studies have investigated large carnivore attack patterns, but no study has addressed the issue on a global scale and included all species of large terrestrial carnivores, according to the authors. The findings will help scientists to address the issues of improving coexistence and the long-term conservation of large predator populations. The report, published Tuesday, this is back in February, found that the number of big carnivore attacks worldwide has increased over time, especially in lower-income countries, which the study characterized by low CO2 emissions and a high proportion of agricultural land. This apparent increase, however, may also be a factor of increased incident reporting in the internet era compared with the study's sample earlier years. Either way, scientists said they expect more conflicts to arise in the future. Although the the report doesn't include every single animal attack, the results also show that humans in in higher income nations encounter predators very differently compared to lower income ones. So we have a breakdown of 5,440 documented animal attacks in the world between 1950 and 2019 by 12 different species. Uh, So sloth bears come in number one place. Sloth bears have attacked 1,337 people in the last uh, few years. Tigers have taken down 1,047. Asiatic black bears, uh, 765. Brown bears, including grizzly bears, 664. Wolves, 414. American black bears, 403. Lions, 282. Leopards, 205. Coyotes, 140. Cougars, 135, and then quite a significant drop down to jaguars at 25 and polar bears at 23. Out of the 5,440 documented attacks, about one in three proved fatal, while the others resulted in human injuries. Fatal attacks were also more common in the lower income uh, countries, primarily because they are home to tigers and lions, which engage in a larger share of such attacks. Encounters often occur while residences are engaged in daily livelihood activities such as farming or herding. They have some dot points here. Big cats like tigers and lions launch the deadliest attacks with 65% proving fatal. 49% of attacks involving canid species, which includes domestic dogs, wolves, coyotes, foxes, jackals, and dingoes, proved fatal. And only 9% of bear attacks prove fatal. That's some interesting data I actually did not know. Um... Yeah, I actually had no idea that um, big cats were the most uh, prolific killers, while bears were less uh, efficient, I guess you would say. So then the article asks, what are the different types of attacks? Attack scenarios vary greatly within and among species, as well as in different areas of the world. Canids and big cats sometimes stalk humans and attack them for food, whereas bears were more often to attack when disturbed while feeding, or a mother who was protecting her cubs. Predatory attacks, in which a carnivore tries to kill for food, represents the most dangerous type of large carnivore attack. In nearly half of the fatal animal attack cases in which the scenario was known, the case was classified as predatory or unprovoked. Predatory, obviously, this is me speaking now, predatory obviously is the more dangerous one because it's on purpose. So a lot of times, a, um, a defense, like, like with a bear, for example, defending its family or from, from a perceived threat um that is just uh it's doing what it needs to do and then like a shark and i know this article doesn't talk about sharks a shark accidentally biting into a surfer and leaving them those are they're not attacking on purpose but a predatory one is like when a tiger is stalking you and it makes the decision and when it does that when it goes in for the kill it's not going to give up that's what i think makes it dangerous so a predatory attack. These are the most heavily concentrated in India, home to 72% of the of such incidents. That's that's such, that's wow, 72% of predatory attacks happen in India. That's huge. These high numbers can largely be attributed to the nation's population of tigers, lions, leopards and wolves. Another 14% of these attacks occurred in Africa. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're surprised that India has such a huge um, number of those. I think I think after 2 years I'm 
willing to say India is the man-eater capital of the world, for sure. Unprovoked, but not predatory attacks, although deliberate, often occur when a person is involved in resting or sleeping and the animal attacks them with the presumed purpose of testing or investigating them as a potential prey. These attacks mostly occurred in North America and Europe, where the animals involved were highly food-conditioned. And I think the bears involved at the granite, uh, the Glacier National Park, um, in that story, those definitely would count that. And then, of course, there's adults who are usually involved in unprovoked attacks, and the animals usually flee after that person reacts. So, why attack? That's the question. Why attack circumstances vary by geography. Villages and farms in low-income nations, identified by the study for their lower emissions and bigger expanses of agricultural and rural land, are often found in carnivore country, which helps scientists explain why some 90% of dangerous encounters occurred during daily activities like farming, herding, or traveling to school or work. The number of attacks in the last several years has actually decreased in countries with large forest coverage compared to numbers from the 1990s. In higher-income nations, such as the United States or Australia, data shows that most attacks occur when humans participate in recreational activities like hiking or camping near carnivore areas. However, research shows that some protected predator populations like brown bears, Eurasian lynx, and grey wolves, found in one-third of mainland Europe, are growing and expanding into urban and suburban areas. Scientists are seeing conflicts rise in Europe and North Africa. America, which may also be especially severe since humans are less accustomed to coexisting with large predators and therefore have less widespread knowledge of prevention and coexistence opportunities. Opportunist animals, like coyotes, bears, and wolves, are intelligent and can adapt to roam near populated human settlements in search of easy meals. Food or trash left outside of the home and humans who intentionally feed predators can also lure these animals to the area. Yearly, Dog, bee, and snake killings are more frequent than large carnivore attacks, and if you're listening to this podcast, you already know that. Although increasing attacks by large carnivores can be the reason to sound the alarm, co-author Vincenzo uh, Penterani, an ecologist at the National Museum of Natural Sciences in Spain, says that humans should put these attacks into a broader perspective. In the United States, hornets, wasps, and bees kill 60 people a year. Most years don't see a single mountain lion or wolf fatality, and pet dogs are responsible for another three dozen or so annual human deaths. Also, deadly attacks by large predators usually receive significantly more media attention, which makes them far more which makes them seem far more common. Yeah, there you go. Some really interesting information there. I do have one more story. Would you like it? It's more of a video than anything. This one says, watch as a big seal attacks a car. Watch this 4,500-pound seal slam into cars like a wrecking ball. This insane video shows what happens during an elephant seal attack. The absolutely massive seal weighing a whopping 4,500 pounds. He throws that weight into cars and trucks parked near a beach in New Zealand. The narrator calls the seal Homer and explains that he is 15 feet long. The huge animal slams his body into the vehicles over and over. People run in the opposite direction, terrified. What on earth makes him act like this? Let's watch the video. This is an old video, by the way. Fifteen foot long, forty-five hundred pound elephant seal who likes to turn their parked cars into punching bags. Bags. Watch as Homer goes ten rounds with this late model sedan. Turns out, solid steel is no match for this heavyweight. <laughs> I love the internet because that's clearly a video from like the 80s or 90s and they've just decided, yeah, we're going to do an article on it. We need traffic. And I fell for it. Um, but it does raise some questions. Do animal, do elephant seals attack humans? Uh, and yeah, they do. And I think we've talked about leopard seals before. We haven't necessarily talked about elephant seals. Elephant seals are the largest um, types of seals. Um, this ma- The males of this species are extremely aggressive during mating season. Females aggressively protect their young. Adult males are called bulls, while adult females are called cows. Anything or anyone that gets in the way of a bull and his harem better be prepared for a fight, and that includes humans. There have also been reports of elephant seals attacking and ferociously biting divers who get too comfortable with the wild animals while scuba diving. Another report says a young elephant seal male attacked a dog in 2007 in California. 
The same seal killed over a dozen harbour seals in the area during its time there. A harem of elephant seals consists of a group of as many as 50 cows, and the bull intends to keep them all to himself. If an elephant seal bull approaches another territory or harem, the defending male launches an attack. Sometimes this is just as loud and bellowing, or trumpeting through their huge floppy nose, aka their proboscis. They also stand tall and show off their size to scare the intruder away. If the trespassing bull doesn't back down, there will be a fight. The bulls use their long, sharp canine teeth to scrape the neck of their opponent while slamming their enormous body weight into them. Although they rarely fight to the death, a battle leaves both parties bloody and injured. Large bulls, like Homer seen in the video, usually have many scars around the necks and chest. The largest elephant seal bull ever recorded weighed an estimated 11,000 pounds. For reference, the average weight of a pickup truck is about 4,000 to 7,000 pounds. There's a lot more information there, but we're gonna we'll, we'll cover it later because this is not a beastly biography segment. Uh, that was our scratch of the day, a weird one because the uh, the yeah we we had a, a video of a really old seal smashing some cars, some really short videos, including breaking news, finally like for the first time ever, a little bit of breaking news, and then of course we found that article about um, large carnivore attacks on land, which is back from February. So yeah, very good. Look, let's move on to our final segment, and it's also our newest segment ever. We launched it last week to outstanding success. Everyone loved it. Please welcome this week's Wacky Weirdo of the Week. Uh, This week's Wacky Weirdo of the Week comes from the Hindustan Times, uh, and the, the title lead says... Odisha man fakes death for government compensation, and that the probe is under his way. Now, how does this relate to man-eaters? How does this relate to animals? Well, I'm going to get to that in a second. The man confessed to have faked his death by leaving his bike and clothes near the river Ghat so that his family can get a compensation of 6 lakh from the State Forest Department. And I looked that up, 6 lakh, that's like $10,000, so it's not a lot. 10,000 US dollars. A 47-year-old man's attempt to fake his own death in a crocodile attack in Odisha's Kendrapara district was busted after police found out about his plan. According to police, he had done it for a compensation from the government. Uh, he had done it for compensation for, from the government meant for those who died in wild animal attacks. On Saturday morning, Bikrant Malak of Andara village left his belongings on the Brahmani riverbank and went missing thereafter. Malik owed a few luck to his creditors and was advised by his friends to pour water on idols near a river. He then went missing, after which locals feared that he might have been dragged into the river by a crocodile. His family then informed the local police station. However, police found his mobile location to be in Katak City, 70 kilometers away from the place where he went missing. We checked the CCTV footage from a shop near Andara village, and through mobile phone tracking, we found him to be in Katak. We asked him to come to the police station. During interrogation, it was found that he had faked his disappearance to get rid of pesky debtors, said Pata Mundai Police Station Inspector Ranjit Mohanti. Malak, Malak confessed to having faked his death by leaving his bike and clothes near the river guard so his family can get a compensation of six lakh from the State Forest Department. Suspecting involvement of his wife and other family members, police are interrogating them as well. Malik's neighbor said that he had been working as a daily wager in Punjab and returned to the village last week. He had taken on a huge loan from some villagers. On his return to the village, they began asking for the money back. He probably hatched his plan to fake his death to help his wife get the compensation amount from the forest department, the neighbor said. Divisional forest officer of uh, Rajnagar, Sudrashan Gopinath, Yavdav said the forest department had previously dealt with false compensation claims related to crocodile attacks, and a thorough inquiry will be conducted in this matter. There you go. Well, there you go, buddy. Uh, Yeah, what's his name again? Um, Bikrant Malik, you are our second ever wacky weirdo of the day. Uh, Right after that weird pedophile who was having sex with dogs. So, this guy I kind of like. I kind of like this one. He's kind of chill. He has a, he's got a, he's scheming and dreaming, you know, that's what he's doing. He's scheming and dreaming and misdemeaning, and, um, 
The other guy is just a dog rapist. So I obviously don't like him as much. It is kind of weird for me to have to say that the dog rapist is now my second favorite of the wacky weirdos of the week because there's only been it's only been two. But it's like quite a significant drop off. I do want to make that very clear to everybody. Gang, that's the end of our episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I hope you have a fantastic week ahead of you. What, what have I got on? Why don't I give you a little life update? Um, I'm going camping this weekend. Ooh, howdy. I can't wait. Bought a little a little hatchet. Going to go chop some wood, make a little fire, eat some beans. Just slum it. Can't wait. Drink a lot of alcohol probably as well. Pass out. Um, it's due to rain though. I don't like that. But, you know, we'll make do. It's a boys weekend. That's what we're doing. It's a boys weekend with me and my boy, Mason. Um, he doesn't listen to the show, so I can tell you all about Mason. He's a beautiful, beautiful man. What are you guys up to? What about you, um, Gwen? Specifically Gwen, who's listening? Oh, wow. A chin implant. <laughs> like Matt Rife. Cool. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs> the Matt Rife thing is so funny. If you don't know, Matt Rife is a quote unquote stand up comedian, and he let he he's not funny. He's just hot, apparently. Um, according to women, he's hot. But uh, yeah, he got to do a Netflix special, and uh, it is not going well for him. I have never seen a quicker fall from grace. <laughs> um, and I'm kind of enjoying it because I've never thought this guy was funny. That's going to do it for our episode this week, gang. Uh, thank you so much for listening. A few little things you can do for me before I skedaddle out of here. Um, you could, if it so pleases you, uh, head to our social media pages, give us a follow, uh, you know, send us a message, all, all that good stuff. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at manitispodcast or at jimothychaps. Both of them work because I um. Hey man, I am I am both of them. It's still me. Um, and then also, if you wouldn't mind having a look at our Patreon program, that's also pretty great. You can give us some money, and that way I'll have some more money. Uh, that's it. Have a fantastic week. I'll see you next week with an episode. Uh, we're doing a cryptids, Killer Cryptids episode next week on the Monkey Man of Delhi. That's right, we're going back to India for a very unknown cryptid, but I'm very excited to tell you about it. It's the Monkey Man of Delhi. Ooh, ooh, ah, ah, ah. <clears throat> oh, shit. I shit everywhere. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, bye, everyone. Bye. I, I really did shit everywhere. <laughs>